Hebrews 12. The, the passage begins in Hebrews chapter 10 at verse 32. Uh, we, we think about chapter 11 as a discrete unit in Hebrews and, and it, as if it just kind of stands by itself and we can take it out and study it by itself. But the issue is, is um, pretty important here. In, in 10.32, Paul begins his, uh, a, a, a new segment of his exhortation. I say Paul. I don't think Paul wrote this book. But Paul wrote the whole Bible. So uh, just plug in whatever's right. If, I, if I'm in Genesis and I say, John, Paul says here, just plug in the right name and it'll be okay. But um, remember the former days in which once you were instructed, you what? Endured. What kind of thing do you endure? Do you endure your favorite movie? Do you endure your favorite meal? Suffering. Suffering. Things you don't like. You endured uh, a great affliction of sufferings. And then, then he details some of that. Verse 35, Do not cast away your boldness, which has great reward, for you need endurance. So that, there it is again, key word here, endurance, so that by doing the will of God you may receive what was promised. Uh, then verse 39, we are not of those who draw back to destruction, but of faith for the possession of the soul or life, perhaps. Um, the, the issue is then that chapter 11 is about one aspect of faith. It's enduring nature, that it endures things that are hard. So Abraham left and he, did, he would have had opportunity to return. You remember this in Hebrews 11? But he stayed the rest of his life in Canaan. He never went on vacation back to, to Haran to see the family because this is the land that God has promised him. This is now home. Haran is not home anymore. Yes? So, um, uh, one of the most important verses in this passage to see this specific concept is about... Uh, uh, Moses, let's see. Um, Oh, let's see. Where is it then? He left Egypt. Uh, Oh, verse 27. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. This is not his first departure from Egypt, this is second not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Well, how do you see him who is unseen? It's, an, it's what faith does. Faith lives in light of unseen realities, organizes its life in light of unseen realities. And this is what I was telling some of you earlier, just, just this afternoon, um, I heard on television of all places a definition of trust that I had never thought before. I had the pieces, but I had never been able to put it together. Trust um, is confidence in the truthfulness of another. Well, if I'm if I'm living by faith, 
I'm living confident in the truthfulness of what God has said. And God has said things about realities we have no experience of. We have no experience of creation, of the act of creation. Yes? Right? I have no experience of crucifixion. But I, 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 I'm confident in the, in the truthfulness of, of the words of another, or the truthfulness of another. Um, so, so, in verse 27, he is able to endure. Why? Because he trusts, like somebody who sees, though the thing that he sees is unseen. Uh, uh, new birth, I, I have concluded, is the ability to, to live in light of unseen reality. Um, uh, so we, that we'll have occasion to come back to that later, so we'll talk about it some more. But, Can you repeat that, please? Uh, new birth. New birth is, is living in light of unseen reality. The ability to live in light of unseen reality. Um, Nicodemus hears new birth and he, he thinks getting going back into his mother's womb and being born again. Yes? He's, he's thinking, he's, he's living in light of seen reality. Jesus is calling him to live in light of unseen reality. Yeah, uh, yes? You, you get it? All right. Um, so when I come to chapter 12 then, um, you have the, the, the most important... New Testament passage on discipline of Christians. It begins in verse 4. You have not yet, by the way, Jesus endures at the beginning of chapter 12. So so the idea of endurance introduced back in chapter 10 is continuing into this portion of the book. Yes, sir? What chapter? Hebrews 12 now. Uh, uh, You have not yet resisted to the point of blood in your struggle against struggle are we still talking about endurance yeah and you have forgotten the the exhortation which is addressed to you as as to sons my son do not despise the chastening of the lord or lose heart when you are rebuked by him for whom the lord and, and scourges scourges every son he receives and he gives three benefits that come from this. In verse 9, um, Then we had fathers of our flesh who disciplined us, and we honored them. Shall we not all the more submit ourselves to the Father of spirits and live? So we, as we undergo the discipline of the Lord, it brings life. Well, what does the discipline of the Lord look like? The Old Testament is full of the notion. I, I had up here a few minutes ago, and I, I don't have an extension cord, so I can't plug the computer in, it's going to go to sleep regularly. Here is, I'm preparing a study for uh, a series that I'm going to do down in Dallas in January, and I decided I'm going to teach this idea on suffering and its role in the Christian life. Um, So uh, Logos Bible Software has an option where you you can search for a theme, and it will, every place that the scholars at Logos have identified that theme will show up. And here it is, by the way. Um, wait, that's not it. Well, that's not it either, so uh, the jury will please disregard the preceding statements. Um, 
But uh, the the larger issue for me is that over 4,000 verses are tagged with the theme of suffering. And I did a little, I, I looked it up on the internet to find out. There are 31,102 verses in the Bible. Uh, that means 14% of the Bible is talking about suffering. So that means a little, little better than one out of ten verses in the Bible is going to be talking about suffering. How important is the subject? Is it always punitive? No. In fact, in Hebrews 12, there's not a word about disciplining us because we're bad. Go back to verses 4 and 5 uh, and 6. What kind of people does God discipline? His children whom He loves. He doesn't say His children who are bad. Was Jesus disciplined? Yes. Because He was bad? No, but because He was His Son. Do you follow this? So how can we escape such things? And why should we even expect to? Um, so the, the issue of suffering is, is critically important. Folks, you really can't grow and the church can't grow without suffering. A man said to me a number of years ago, uh, it was actually in a, in a group chapel at, at the college, he said to us, relationships are fostered by conflict. Uh, when I when I married my wife, I thought I was glad that I married her. Yes, because I don't have to. It's just oh, oh. Then I, I discovered that marriage is putting two sinner sinners together in a relationship which is guaranteed to drive to the surface every flaw and foible in your life. Nothing is hidden, and it creates conflict. But the love grows, the real love grows, as you work through the conflict and work past it to a place where you accept the other for who he or she is. Does this make sense? Well, that's that's how you do a marriage. How do you think, why do you think that all... Suffering must be punitive when it's not here in Hebrews 12. It's not punitive at all in Hebrews 12. Uh, So why do you think that all suffering must be punitive? And why do you think that punitive suffering is exempt from the will of God and is exempt from producing in us the likeness of Christ? So Romans 8, we got into this through Romans 8, 17 if we suffer with him, that we shall be glorified with him. Uh, Folks, Jesus suffered. I must suffer. Uh, In part, because I'm I'm a soldier in war, behind enemy lines, with no uniform. Which by definition means I'm a spy, according to the laws of warfare. I'm a spy and may be surreptitious, uh, 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 what's the word I want? Summarily executed on sight with no trial, nothing, no 
recourse to justice. So here we are in the world. What do you think the world is going to do with us? And, and, and why? Because we're at war. And we're soldiers behind enemy lines out of uniform. Right, am I making sense to you? It's not because we're bad, but because we're an affront to the world. So we are here to be behind enemy lines. We're stationed behind enemy lines. The commander has set us here. Uh, and pretty much, when the commander gives posting orders, you're there for the duration until he changes the orders. Does that make sense? So our, our lot is for suffering and, and all suffering, even if... Um, we read that in Hebrews 12. Yeah, but I don't feel so. I know. It doesn't, doesn't matter. God, God, God tailors things just for you, and that's all right. Uh, he's doing his thing, and I can't tell you what it's going to look like. I can't tell you what it's going to be like. It, it's going to be something different for each of us. What is hard for me won't be hard for you. What's hard for you isn't hard for me. So um, I, th- this is beyond me. I, you've asked me to go to a level of of, uh, res, of, of authority that I can't achieve. Yeah, explain the trend. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and get two examples. So, in twenty five words or less. So, uh, so, Romans chapter one. Let's get back to our study. Thank you. Yes, thank you. That, that's a crucial question. And as Americans, the prosperity gospel has infected even good evangelical churches. So. People say uh, things about happiness and peace, and they think they know what they're talking about, but not in Scripture. It's it's really fundamentally different. Yes, sir. Jim, I, I think that the problem is is that we tend to compare ourselves even in suffering. Right. Well, I'm not suffering like those in Ethiopia nope. or those in the Middle East. That's right. And we think, therefore, I'm not suffering. Yeah. You know, it's... But it's, is it Proverbs that says every man knows its own sorrow? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, some are suffering because they can't be as mobile and do the things mm-hmm. that That's right. they wanted to with their mm-hmm. kids, and yet they remain yeah. uh, they remain faithful and, and mm-hmm. full of joy. And, That's right. You know, so it's yeah. like you say, God, God uh, fashions it yeah. for each of us in a way that tests us to yes, our indeed. Limits. That's right. Good. Thanks for bringing that in. That's good. Uh, boy, this thing keeps going to sleep on me. Gracious goodness. Here we go. Um, let's see. I think we were uh, at the point of turning to, to verse 18 last week in chapter 1. You're saying to yourself, are we ever going to get through this book? We've only gotten through verse 18, and we've had already several. This is the fifth meeting of the group, and the answer is yes, we're going to get through the book. Maybe not this year. So, uh, it's certainly not in 2022. Uh, maybe a little bit later. But, uh, uh, oi. Well, Stacy just decided he's going to take two years to do his. Oh, well, good. I'm glad you know that. Uh, Paul is arguing um, in chapters 1 to uh, to 11 that righteousness is by faith. 
But in order to establish the truth of that, that the reason he has to argue this is that if righteousness is by faith, it's not by works, and if it's not by works, it's not because of what you eat or don't eat. So Romans 15, 14 and 15. That, that issue in the church has to be laid aside. And we must embrace the notion that I must give you the same grace that I have received from the Lord. Grace is something that comes to us, not to terminate on us, to, but to, to flow out, even to the lost of the world. So I, if I have a problem neighbor, I'm to give them grace because I am a recipient of grace. His, his sin is not greater than my sin. So, if Jesus died for my sin, and he can forgive me, then I can forgive my neighbor. Does this make sense? So, um, so in order to, to really, in, in, really settle this, to put it on a firm foundation, first thing that Paul has to do is to show that there is no ground for either the weak condemning the strong or the strong despising the weak because we are all fundamentally condemned by sin and in sin. So Romans uh, 8.18, he will start to talk about this. And that's going to take us through 3.20. This is the dark part of the letter. It's hard. Um, It's painful. I'd, I'd rather not go through this, but it's essential because grace is only grace when you know how sinful we really are. So, so 1.18-3.20. In this passage, um, then, no, no possibility exists to gain righteousness by works. There is no possibility. And folks, that's not less true after you're saved than it was before you were saved. Um, I, I hear people say, yes, we're saved by grace, but grace always produces obedience. Well, folks, that isn't true. If that were true, there couldn't have been a book called 1 Corinthians. If grace always produces obedience, there would have never been a 1 Corinthians. Are you with me here? So grace does not always produce obedience, but it always does change us. So I've I've got to get grace to be real grace. There is a movement called the Free Grace Movement, and they, they are saying uh, there, there are different flavors in it. Uh, but um, in the Free Grace Movement, some of them are saying um, God saves you by grace through faith completely. And you can stay there the rest of your life and never produce another act of righteousness. Never do. In fact, you can get involved in gross sin and still go to heaven. Uh, but if you will do the right things, then you will be uh, a partaker in the kingdom. And so you will if, see, see that first group only goes to heaven. The second group goes into the kingdom. I'm, I'm not sure how you distinguish the two, but <laughs> this group does that. So if you if you seek to grow and you you do grow spiritually, then you become a partaker and you get into the kingdom. The folks who didn't become partakers are just left in heaven. But do you see works added to faith there? They, they, they call themselves free grace, but it's free grace plus works. Um, 
we have lots of folks who say, once you're saved, you must com- obey the commandments. Uh, what commandments, I might say. Some of them will say, well, all the moral commandments of the Mosaic Law. And they make a distinction among three, three sets of commandments. Perhaps you've been introduced to this idea. Three sets of commandments, the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral law. Have you heard this distinction before someplace? Uh, folks, I've taught through the law a, a number of times. I would be hard-pressed to distinguish the civil, the ceremonial, and the moral. In fact, once God has commanded something and you break it, it's a moral problem. Would you grant that? Well, they say, well, the civil law is for the state, and, and we're, not, we're not thinking in terms of the state adopting the law of Moses, though much of the, what the state does require is in the law of Moses. But then doesn't that become a moral issue? And, and isn't that still incumbent upon us? Uh, ceremonial laws are pretty easy to identify. They have to do with rituals of sacrifice and priesthoods and all of that. But again, having commanded it, if Israel violates it, isn't that a moral issue? So how do you distinguish civil from ceremonial and moral? In a fine commentary on the book of Hebrews in chapter 9, one of the great commentators, I, I don't remember whether it was uh, Donald Guthrie or um, oh, who, who's the other? F.F. Uh, uh, F. Bruce, whose birthday is today, by the way. F.F. F. Bruce. Uh, I think it's... How special. Yeah. <laughs> is it your birthday, too? Born the same day. Well, how about you? Uh, uh, Francis Biza was born this day, too. He was a... a, a, a a Frenchman who was a successor to Luther in leading the, the uh, Reformed churches. Yeah, he's been gone a year or two. Uh, the, the issue for me is uh, the New Testament says, uh, Galatians chapter 5 uh, and, and James chapter 2, uh, the law is a unity. If you break one law, if you Galatians five says, if you take one, in fact, turn to Galatians five. I want you to see that. I want you to be oppressed by this curse. Galatians chapter five. Um, verse two. Galatians five two. It's on page five hundred eighty six. <laughs> I, I said in the right Bible one time at, at First of Ann and a lady in the class came down after class was over and she said, Jim, what is the right Bible? And I said, well, it's the one I've got. <laughs> uh, Galatians, say, yeah, Galatians 5.2. See, I, Paul, tell you that if you are circumcised, Christ will, will be of no benefit to you. I testify again to everyone who is circumcised that he's a debtor to do the whole law. Do you know that falling from grace is a biblical concept? Do you know that you can fall from grace? Are you aware of this? Move your heads. I'm getting no response. Oh gosh, it's quite biblical. It's right here in this text. Look at the next verse. Um, 
you have been in here. The, the verb is fairly strong. Um, what do you have? You've been cut off from Christ, severed from Christ, estranged from Christ is better. You who, you who are... You who are trying to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. How do you fall from grace according to that verse? Trying to be justified by the law. Yeah. So obedience as a way of life, as, a, as an object, an, an objective to achieve, obedience causes you to fall from grace. But what does then, so look back at verse uh, 2. Christ will be of no benefit to you. Why? Because the benefits of Christ don't come to obedient people. They come to people of faith who trust him. Yeah, yeah, and that's what they always say. Yeah, but there will be obedience. No, (laughs) no. What, What we're contrasting here is not the obedience that grows from the grace of God. What we're what we're contrasting it with is is obedience as a way of getting the blessing of God. Um, there was something going on at the college a number of years ago, and one of the faculty members said, we just need to have a, a day of fasting and prayer so that, to move the hand of God. Well, folks, if my fasting will move the hand of God... then i got a whole lot more power than I ought to have. Um, in fact, fasting is, is more, more in, in the Old Testament and in the New, for the most part, is mourning over sin. Folks, if you're mourning over your sin, what happened to the work of Jesus? doesn't mean that we should be proud of it, but it ought to, it ought to mean that we're free of the burden so we can talk about it freely with people. Does this make sense to you? All right. So back to, to Romans 1, 18. Um, there is no possibility of righteousness. My obedience does not enhance my righteousness before God. It expresses the right relationship that I have with God. Folks, I have a right relationship with God. That's what we mean by righteousness, not obedience. If it's obedience, if righteousness is obedience, then God declares Sinful people, obedient, and that's a lie. It's a contradiction in terms. And God never contradicts himself. So if God declares sinful people obedient, then he's not God. But he can declare that sinful people have right relationship with himself. And that will be true because we are sinful believers. So Luther's old statement... He did it in Latin, simul justus et peccator. At the same time, a sinner, I'm sorry, at the same time, righteous and a sinner. Both are true. Sinner here does not mean a person who is lost and under the condemnation of God. It means a person who does sin. What is a potter? A person who does pottery. Do you still do sins from time to time? Yeah. Well, then, yeah, you're still a sinner, but you're still righteous before God because God has said so. Yes, sir. Why does it feel so much that if I'm having quiet times and devotion that 
God is near and I'm, yeah. and I'm, I'm feeling yeah. protected yeah. when I'm when I'm not and when I'm in sin and I know what I I don't. Why does it feel so different? Uh, there would be a lot of different explanations. Uh, one would be, it's what we've been trained to do. It's the way we've been trained to think about this. Another would be that God's responding to your faith uh, in him, and that would be the actual reason. Uh, see, I don't have a quiet time. I discovered years ago, uh, I discovered this in my senior year in college. I was reading the Bible in Greek all the time uh, in those days, and uh, my life was a mess. <laughs> um, so I discovered in that period, and then, by the way, when I went in the army, I had a little New Testament that my church gave me, and I, I kept it. Uh, we couldn't have many personal possessions at, at the barracks and basic training, but we could have some. And so I kept this little New Testament. And in the mercy of God, my, my bunk was right by the, the uh, windows in the bay, <laughs> and there was a street light outside. We had to, can you, now, I don't know what you're, if you have any military experience or not, but we had to be in bed at 9 o'clock every night. It was, it was a strange period of military training, but I would re- lie there reading. I just devoured. I couldn't get enough New Testament because I couldn't survive without it. I couldn't get through this. Just married nine days when I reported for the Army. Over time, I realized if I distinguish the academic and the devotional use of Scripture, it's going to be deadly to me. I have to put them together. I can't, I can't have a quiet time. Uh, so, so I'm studying Scripture all day long, most days. And the, they, they, the two have to go together for me. Um, I don't feel better after than I did before. I just... I'm trusting God as you're trusting God as you do this. So God is responding to your faith, and that's a right and good thing to do. And if it serves you, you should continue it. But for me, it became deadly to distinguish the academic and the devotional use of Scripture. So I'm, I'm not holding myself up as a pattern to be followed. I'm just saying there are times when having a, dead, having a, having a uh, devotional time can be actually bad for you spiritually. Uh, so um, God is, is dealing with you, and, and that's good. The, the issue here is um, that righteousness is altogether by faith. And if there's obedience, it's because God does it in us. Um, what is that? Um, Philippians 1 6. My, this is one of my wife's favorite verses. Being confident of this very thing, that the one, and, and by the way, uh, trust is confidence in the truthfulness of another. Is God speaking truth? Is Paul speaking truth here? Well, yeah, uh, being confident of this, this very thing, that the one who began a good work in you will leave it up to you to complete it. Will complete it unto the day of Jesus. All of my obedience is his work in me. Where is that verse? 
Um, oh dear, these things are slipping from my mind, and I'm that's frustrating. Um, uh, Philippians. Uh, uh, two, uh, 2.12 Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, with fear and trembling, work out your own salvation. That's the Methodist verse. Yeah. Right? But there's a Presbyterian verse that comes next. So, Verse 13. For the one who is performing in you the willing... And the doing of his good pleasure is God. I, I learned from this that there are five things that are true. I never obey unless first God gives me the desire to do it. Then he gives me the ability to do it. Then he does it in me. <laughs> then he gives the results. And the fifth, he rewards me. Are you with me here? So, is my obedience the cause of the blessing of God in my life? No. It is my relationship with Jesus that is the cause of blessing in my life. And one of the blessings is obedience. But it's not something that I have to wait. I've got to obey. Come hell or high water, we're going to obey Jesus right now. Amen. You know. That, that may come at some point. But the, but the issue is that this is the natural life. Why does a baby cry? Get attention. Yeah, especially a newborn. Express a need. Um, and so mom or dad come and take care of that need. Why does a baby crawl? <clears throat> to get to the other side. Why does the chicken cross the road? <laughs> why, does a, why does a baby crawl? Well, that. Yeah, they're maturing. They're built to imitate. And they see everybody around them moving. And they think, you know, probably I would like to do that. They're, they don't. They can't conceptualize it, but it's they're built in to know what hands and feet and and, and legs are supposed to do. Um, and so they start trying to do what the folks around them are doing, and they start scooting across the the floor, and then eventually they get up on their hands and start. Oh goodness, this is working nice. This is more effective, and. They're, they're experimental scientists, every one of them. Uh, and then they see, once they're crawling, they see that everybody else is not doing it on hands and knees. They're doing it on their feet. They start pulling up on the sofa. Yes? Why? Because it's the way God built them. And we're so glad when we see them maturing appropriately. Yes? And, and it's, it's a joy, the baby's first step. When did baby start crawling? Yes? Um, th- this is this is the way we're made, folks. The way you're made as a child of God is to live by faith 
And faith has four elements. Knowledge of the, purpose, of the person and plan of God. This is where the trust is going to come in. Person and plan of God. You accept what you have learned as true and valid for you. Uh, you enter into a love relationship with God that leads to two things. Changed behavior. And I said not always better for the better, but sometimes for the worse. Because if I think the person that I'm trusting is other than he actually is, my, my behavior change is going to be wrong. Yes, ma'am. So are you saying like 1 Corinthians would just be reminding them of theology, of the resurrection? Mm-hmm. You know, this says, for you've been fought with a prize, therefore, therefore glorify God in your body. Yeah, and yeah. So, I mean, obedience does... It does flow from this. And there is something when you're not being mm-hmm. obedient to mm-hmm. do, I mean, it could... Well, there are a variety of... Yeah. That's true, but not all disobedience comes from the same source. Right. Some disobedience comes from f- faulty knowledge of God, right. which can be a, a matter of um, lack of opportunity to learn. The church I grew up in told us you're saved by faith and saved by grace. But now it's your responsibility to obey. And you got to do it, boy. And if you're not obeying enough, then you, 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 you're not going to lose your salvation. We, we were convinced of that. But God's going to put you on the shelf and you'll be useless. And I lived in terror of that uh, for years. Um, but they never, you, you know, if you don't feed a baby, baby never crawls. Is that true? Baby has to have good nurturing, uh, nurturing in every level, not just nutrition, but nurturing. Uh, and when you're in a fellowship where you're not getting nurtured, and that's an awful lot of churches in our country, they're not nurturing churches. When you're in that kind of a situation, you can't grow. And when you have a ten-year-old child who's still living like a a, a baby. You know something's wrong, and it's not the fault of the child. A normal child at 10 should not be living like a baby. Yes? There are other uh, forces at work. If I leave Christians without nutrition, without nurturing, they're not going to grow. And if they don't mature, they can't give the obedience that the Scriptures talk about. As... 1 Corinthians chapter 3, when I came to you, I could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to carnal. We translate it carnal. Fleshly. Um, Babies in Christ. And the word baby there in Greek is the same word as our word infant. Infant comes from Latin, infants, which means a, a child so young it cannot speak. And that's the same meaning for that word baby in 1 Corinthians uh, 2. Um, is it, is it wrong to be a baby when you're a baby? Dumb kid. Up. When are you going to grow up and take responsibility for yourself? <laughs> Tomorrow. <laughs> Jill was in the choir at her high school, and junior high, I guess it was. And uh, they had a, a uniform that had a tie. And she's left-handed, and I'm right-handed. And I tried to teach her how to tie a tie, but it just didn't work. It, I, I couldn't make the shift to a left-hander. And so she would bring the tie to me, and I'd tie it. And I'd 
said, when are you going to take responsibility? Grow up and take responsibility for yourself. And we'd laugh and go on. One day, though, she said, tomorrow. I'll do it tomorrow. <laughs> but, but, folks, is it wrong for a baby who has not had good nutrition not to crawl? It's wrong that the child didn't get good nutrition, but it's not the fault of the baby. Are you with me here? Sin now no longer has the the specific character of transgression for us. It has the character of of immaturity. You, you'll have to take that on faith. I, I'll need to go look up the passages that are relevant there. But but now we, we are we are not. It's not a legal issue, nor is it even an issue in the family. It's an issue of immaturity, and we need to grow up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, he goes on to say um, something I can't remember. Um, um, verse 1, when I came to you, brothers, I, I came not in the excellence, this is wrong, uh, chapter 3, Chapter 3, verse 1 is what I was interested in. And I, brothers, could not speak to you as to spiritual, but as to fleshly, as to babies in Christ. I fed you with milk. Why? Because they were bad? Bad child, I'm having to feed you milk. Is Is it because they're bad? No. It's because they're babies. They're infants. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not able. But you're still now not able to bear it. For you are now, he uses a different word, determined by the flesh. Um, For where there is envy and strife, um, are you not uh, determined by the flesh and walking like mere mere men? Um. The, the point is, they've not grown. Do you follow this? Yes, ma'am. What about the sin I do? Oh, that's a good question. Where does the Bible teach that we have a sin nature? Does that say that we have a sin nature? No, it doesn't say that. Um, the NIV in Romans 6 and 7 talks about a sin nature. It's the only place that that shows up. And, and it's the only translation that does that. Um, David said I was conceived in sin. But does that mean I have a sin nature? Um, he, he is born as a sinner. I, have, I only have one nature. It's called human. <laughs> but I have a proclivity to sin. Um, yes, brother? Well, I guess I was, I was getting okay. to the disposition Sin, which yeah. Says, I want to be independent of God. I I, I, want to be... I talked for. I, I I painted houses for for a living for a couple of years, and I have been blissfully delivered from that for the rest of my life so far. Uh, but. Um, you want to practice? You can come to my. Oh no, thanks. I've I've had all the practice I want, and I don't want to go back into practice. But the, suffering. Oh, I, oh boy. In Dallas, oh gosh, those hot days. Uh, uh, I, one of the men I worked, all of us were seminary students or graduates. 
And one of the guys that I worked with, uh, the crew that I worked on was a doctoral student with me. He was in the theology department. I was in the Old Testament department. And I'd heard about some idea that was going around the seminary at that time. And it was uh, uh, that we don't have two natures. We only have one. We have a human nature. And in that human nature is a proclivity to sin. And I said, uh, uh, Doug, tell me what this is all about. What's this two nature, one nature thing going on? We tie. Doug was brilliant. Couldn't communicate worth a dime. I, and I, each answer he would give was more confusing than the question that I asked before. And so I asked him another question. We went all day long, eight to five that day, talking about that subject. And by the end of the of the day, I said, "So, let me see if I get it. We have one nature, a human nature. When we're lost." We're condemned in sin, and we're condemned to sin. But when we're saved, uh, the Holy Spirit works in us to produce righteousness. He said, that's right. But I said, doesn't the sin nature, new nature, do the same thing? He said, yes. I said, well, why is this view better than that view? He said, because it's more biblical. Uh, the Bible never talks about a sin nature. We don't have a lost nature. We don't have a sin nature. We're humans. And as humans, we're born in sin. But that's our relationship with God. We're born in, at, at enmity with God. But that's not because we have a sin nature. It's because we're born heirs of, uh, heirs of Adam. And we're, we're good chips off the old block. Uh, when God saves us, I still have... A, um, a response pattern that responds easily to temptation. But I'm a baby. Yes? Yes? 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I'm a baby. And as a baby, I can only respond in baby ways spiritually. For Paul, if you look back at 1 Corinthians 3, 1, or 2, again, he contrasts being a baby with being spiritual. So if the antonym of baby is spiritual, what's another English word that would be an antonym of baby? Adult, mature. So spiritual people are mature. Mature people can do things that mature people do. We are all mature people. We can walk. We can talk. Yes, we can reason. Yes, So mature people can do things that babies can't do. What happens if a baby is not given sufficient nutrition? Is it that the sin nature is unleashed? No, it's that this new baby, this born-again child of God, has not been given sufficient nutrition. They don't know much about the person of God or the plan of God. And they haven't figured out that what God is looking for is a love relationship with us that's going to change our behavior. The relationship changes our behavior. Yes, ma'am. I wonder, am my brain trying to... Sure. It's not an either-or, it's both ends. You know, so like Ephesians says, there's a foundation of reminding us who we are in Christ. Yeah. Then, and, he goes on and gives us commandments on mm-hmm. how we're... Yeah, yeah. So there isn't a... There's an obedience, yeah, but it's but it's not the the commandments are not not there so that uh, he can force you to obey. 
this is what God's going to be doing in you. So uh, looking back at Philippians 2, 12 and 13 again, I see the commandment and the Holy Spirit's work is to make me want to do that. But you still, somehow, he still gives an impression that you could choose not to. Well, yeah. Uh, but that's, you see, it's either living by faith or living by works. So if I live by works, I, uh, one of the problems here is the word flesh itself. What do you think of when you think of flesh? What's a synonym for flesh? Sin. Yeah. Body. Yeah. But but in in Paul, when Paul talks about the flesh, what do you think of it? Yeah, of this world. That's good. That's actually pretty good. Unrighteous. Yeah. Um, what if I told you that flesh is a desire to keep the law to be righteous? Um, Paul lived by the flesh before Saul of Tarsus lived by the flesh. Yes or no? Did that mean he was just bound up in drunkenness and and prostitution? How did it show itself in him? Can't hear you. Persecution. Persecution. Why did he persecute Christians? There's this idea that if we're not, if we don't receive our righteousness through Christ, we're going to seek righteousness or something else. That's right. And it might be elevating ourselves. Like, uh-huh. I won't do that. Uh-huh. Or, uh-huh. That, or they deserve it. Yes. Yeah. So that's, where I'm, that's where I'm headed with all this. So the reason Paul did that is Deuteronomy 12 and 13. Uh, Deuteronomy 13 specifically. Um if you find that there's a, a town among your brothers where someone is teaching a different God and calling people to follow a different God, and you find that this is not only happening, but the, the town is following that false prophet, you're to go and in, investigate and find out if it's true. And if it is, you take all the people and slaughter them. You take all the things that are in their homes, you pile it in the city square, you burn it all, you tear down the, ho- the homes, and you leave them as a permanent uh, ruin so that the rest of Israel will learn not to follow false gods. Paul is persecuting Christians because he thinks he's obeying the law. Does that make sense? He's seeking righteousness by the law. He's living by flesh. Flesh is not trying to be bad. Flesh is trying to be good. And this has been part of our problem with the whole sin nature issue. That by, by the NIV, by translating it there, um, sin nature, has, has perpetuated the notion that what Paul is talking about is people who are, are trying to get into sin. No, they're trying to get relationship with God by their works. How would that bear on Romans 14 and 15? See, if the issue is there are the strong who eat meat and the weak who eat vegetables and the strong despise the weak and the weak condemn the strong, how would sin nature that makes you want to be wicked bear on that discussion? This is where, folks, Paul's a good writer. He's a good communicator. You grant both of those? Do you grant both of those? 
right? Then if that's the case, he's, le- he's building a case to lead to a conclusion. And the conclusion is there in 14.1 to 15.13. Yes, sir. Give me that definition. Flesh is the desire. For law righteousness. For law righteousness. Any law. doesn't matter which law. Uh, what society on the face of the earth do you know about which we, we will call some societies lawless, but which society do you know about that has no standards by which if, one, if a member of the community of, uh, abides by the, command, uh, by the standards, he grows in, glory, in honor in the group. If he violates the, the, uh, the standards, he loses honor in the group. Is there any human society that's not like that? Including criminal society? Even criminal societies have that. Where did they get that? We were created with a desire to obey the commandments of God. Would you grant that? Nothing in Scripture says that. But God creates a man and a woman. He puts them in a garden with a, with a commandment. Did he also give them a desire to keep it? When we talk about total depravity, um, there, the, the two terms each need to be defined. Depravity means that we're no longer able to do what we were created to do. So my desire to obey the commandment of God has now been corrupted into my desire to keep some standard, which I want to set. That's what the garden was about. I want to define how what is good and what is evil. I don't want to take God's definition. I want the right to define what is good and evil. So... If I am flesh, uh, I am depraved. That is, my desire to keep commandments has been made. My desire to keep commandments is now not able to keep the commandments of God, but we we, we didn't want to anyway, even in our unfallen state. So I I will substitute any Boy Scout law. Uncle of mine said, boy, wouldn't it be great if everybody in America would keep Boy Scout law? Uh, we'd better have better, and probably would have a better country if we had everybody keeping the scout law. But it's irrelevant to our status before God. You follow this? And by total, it means that every part of our being has been corrupted so that it cannot fulfill the purpose for which we were created. Our will is is corrupted now. Our, our thinking is corrupted. Is there, is there any evidence in the newspaper of this? <laughs> Are you with me? So, so um, the, the issue is that we really um, have to learn to trust God in order to be obedient. It's not that I trust God and I obey it's I trust God that I may obey. Uh, so the obedience comes, and some of it will be, uh, in some measure, things that you don't even realize you're doing, which turn out to be evidentially, evidently the work of the Holy Spirit in you. And others will recognize it. Um, I had that exact opposite <coughs> We have to be. We have to trust God to learn to be obedient. I was trying to do just the opposite. I was trying to figure out how could I be obedient mm-hmm. so I could be saved. Yeah. And, yeah. It, and I struggled with it for yeah. years. 
But then there, there's on the other side, uh, if you're not obedient enough, you know whether you may not even be saved. Well, Paul doesn't think that way. Turn to First Corinthians five. These are great questions. And I haven't even gotten to verse 18 yet. (laughs) 1 Corinthians chapter 5. What what is the specific problem addressed in 1 Corinthians 5 in the opening of the chapter? Yeah. Is he even, how can he even be a believer? How can you do that and call yourself a believer? Right? If you had this happening in your local church, what would be going around the church? You've got to get rid of this guy. Not even saved, probably. Paul doesn't think in those terms. Um, Verse 3, For I, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already decided, even though uh, uh, as if I were were present, um, uh, that this thing should be done. In the name of the Lord Jesus, when you have gathered together, and my spirit is in your midst by the power of, the, of the, our Lord Jesus to hand such a one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. <coughs> that his soul may be saved in the day of Jesus. So he thinks of him as a saved man. Doesn't even call into question his, his, his saved condition. Am I making sense? Yes, sir. Yeah, this makes me want to start with, like, we'll get in Romans later where it talk, tells us to, to if we put to death the deeds of the flesh mm-hmm. through the Spirit. Yes. The deeds of the flesh. Yes. But the deeds of the flesh are not the, the, are not the desires of the flesh. What the, what the flesh desires is to keep the law. What the flesh does is break the law. Because that's all it can do. So, this is... See, we're working with a whole tradition in which most of us were raised. It's called Keswick Theology. K-E-S-W-I-C-K. You may never have heard the term. Some of you may have. But um, remember the, the Holy Spirit book that the Campus Crusade folks used to pass around? Yes, the blue book. No? All right. Well, good. <laughs> but you've probably been introduced to this idea. When you sin as a Christian, you're carnal. Have you heard this? And what do you have to do to get over being carnal? Take yourself off the phone. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but how in the world do you do that? Uh, their answer was, and this is a standard answer, you confess all known sin, ask for the forgiveness of your sins, uh, ask for the cleansing of your uh, 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 of the Holy Spirit, and then you're spiritual. You ask for the filling of the Spirit, and then you're spiritual until you sin the next time, and then you're carnal, and you must go through what they call spiritual breathing. You've heard this idea? No? Not the spiritual breathing. I've heard it. But, yeah, but they, they called it spiritual breathing. Um, there, there are a couple of problems with that. Spiritual is a term that Paul uses for mature people. So you're not mature for five minutes and then you sin and, and you have to go through spiritual breathing and then you're mature again. Uh, that's not the way maturation works. 
Yes. Uh, second problem is they always use First John one nine, but what if First John is not about spiritual life? What is? It, what if it's about false teachers and how to discern them? Uh, one of the purposes that First John has a number of purpose statements in it. Folks, if you're going to interpret a book, if it gives purpose statements, you better use them. Okay, and not just one of them. There, there are a number of them in First John. First John chapter five. These things I have written to you, uh, uh, that you may, uh, who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you may know that you have eternal life. Why would he? Why would that even be an issue? Well, in First John chapter two, there's another statement of what. John thinks he's writing about. And if John thinks he's writing about it, he probably is. Uh, These things I have written to you about those who are deceiving you. Now, you see, I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wise things. Most people don't know. And if at the end of chapter 2 he says, these things I have written to you, he's probably talking about what he was writing in chapters 1 and 2. Would that make sense? Yes or no? Yes. Well, what's he writing about in chapters 1 and 2? They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But this all happened that it might be made clear that they were never of us. They are the spirit of the, the false teachers are the spirit of Antichrist. They deny the uh, the incarnation of the Son of God. They deny Jesus as the Christ come in the flesh. And by chapter four, he's still talking about that subject. Why would that be important for that you may know that you have eternal life? Well, folks, when people come out of false teaching and they hear true teaching, but they hear it, um, there, there was a 12-step program a number of years ago I heard about for people coming out of the cults back to Orthodox Christianity. And the cults, folks, the best lie has a lot of truth in it. You can't lie well unless there's enough truth to convince people you know what you're talking about. So um, the the cults have church services look just like ours. Same order of service. They sing hymns, some of the same hymns we sing. And the the sermons are delivered the same way we deliver our sermons. And... um, so they come to a, an Orthodox church after leaving the cult. And what's going to happen? What are the responses they're going to have? They're programmed for is to respond, I've just left that, and here it is in this church. And they didn't know how to respond, so there was a 12-step program to help them integrate back into uh, believing Christian churches. Uh, Well, when a false teacher has been in the leadership of a church and has been exposed and has been expelled and and, and the followers of the false teacher have gone out, it leaves the people in the church wondering, well, who then is trustworthy? Whom can I trust? Because we thought this guy was trustworthy, but he shows up not trustworthy. This is what John is writing to, to show um, in 1 John 1, 6, if we say, let me, let me point back to you, if, if you turn to 1 John 1, uh, look at this just a minute. 
there's an there is the an appendix to the book on on Romans if you have it that has all of this argument in it if you'd like to read this in full. But um, in First uh, John one, what was from the beginning, what we have heard. Who is we? Is it all Christians? Who is who is the we in verse 1? Is it all Christians? Did your hands handle the word of life? Yes, the disciples. And I, I would call them the apostolic teachers of the church. Um, and right through, look at verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we announce to you. Who is you? Congregation. Congregation are the recipients of the book. Um, that you may have fellowship with us. Wait a minute. Why do I need fellowship with the disciples? I thought I needed fellowship with God, so what am I doing fellowshipping with the disciples? Because their fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This is in the context of the exodus of false teachers. Their fellowship is not with the Father and with His Son. So if you want to have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, you've got to fellowship with the apostolic teachers of the church. Not with Jim Allman, because he's not an apostolic teacher of the church. But with John and, 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 and the other apostles. So when you get to verse 6, if we say, is the we somehow different here? Uh, this Look at verse 5. This is the, the a message that we heard from Him and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say, is the we somehow different now? We've treated it as if it is, but if you follow it, he doesn't include the readers in that pronoun until chapter 2. So he's doing, he's setting up verses 6, 8, and 10 are the practices of false teachers. Verses 7 and 9 are the practices of true teachers. A true teacher, see, Look at verse 9. To whom do we confess? If, if we confess our sins, to whom do we confess? To God. to God. Does it say that? He. Yeah, I know. But does it say if we confess to God? John uses this word nine other times in his writings. And not once is it a prayer word. It's always something like uh, in First John four. Um, every by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ is from God. Every spirit that denies such a Jesus is not from God. How do you know the difference between a true teacher and a false? Because a false teacher talks publicly denying the incarnation of Jesus. A true teacher affirms the confession uh, the, the publicly. So, so the word confess in John, uh, in John 1, uh, they sent from Jerusalem to see about John the Baptist. Remember this? Yes or no? Right? In John 1, they come from Jerusalem and they say to him, are you the Christ? And he confessed and did, and did not deny but confessed. So what he did, because this was prayer, and Jesus says we're to pray in private, 
So what he did was he ran down to his cave and got way in the back where he had a closet because King James says you've got to pray in the closet. Amen? So he has a closet in the back. He's got a little line and a curtain hanging over there. and drew the, 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 the curtain over it, got down on his knees and said, Oh God, I am not the Messiah. And then he came back and waited for the next question. What does confess mean? It means go on record. It, it means make a public declaration. Of something. Does this make sense to you? So a preacher who can't talk about his own failings either is mistaught in the Scripture or he doesn't really understand that he's forgiven and cleansed. Only people who, can, who are forgiven and cleansed, and they know it, can talk about their sins in public. Does this make sense? So, so 1 John 1 really has nothing to do with spiritual life. It's about who, who can I listen to? Whom, whom can I trust? We've covered a lot of ground, but not in Romans today. <laughs> so it is time, well past time to stop. So let's, uh, let's uh, we'll pick up with verse 18 next week. <laughs> so, Lord, thank you for your word. But Father, we have done with it what we want. Teach us to find your word in it, not ours. For Jesus' sake we pray, amen.